want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the last part of this chapter that we've been in for a couple of weeks now. We're going to be um, looking at verses 25 through 40, the end of that chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's some Bibles uh, underneath the seats in front of you. If you need to pick one of those up, I think it's also printed in your bulletin. Just by way of quick review, uh, remember in this letter of 1 Corinthians, which we've been in for a while, we are, we are hearing one side of an ongoing correspondence, a conversation of sorts between the Apostle Paul and the church and believers in the city of Corinth, which God had established through Paul's ministry a number of years before and now in his absence is dealing with all kinds of issues of division and dysfunction within the body and difficult questions related to living together, not only in the community of faith, in the body of Christ, but also in a thoroughly pagan and and non-Christian culture around. And in chapter 7, Paul has been addressing a specific question or concern around the issue of, of marriage and, and singleness, sex and, and celibacy and how all of these relate to our life in Christ. And he starts out by saying in the beginning of the chapter that while, while sexual immorality is indeed to be avoided, sexual intimacy in and of itself is not wrong or evil, but it is designed, it's given by God exclusively for a man and a woman in the covenant commitment of marriage. And in marriage, sex is a delight and it is a duty uh, of both husband and wife to be given to one another as a, as a mutual gift uh, and, 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 and love for one another. And he says, therefore, if, if, if such a temptation, it's also meant to guard against the temptation of sexual immorality. He says, if such a temptation, whether from the culture around us or whether from our own, our own flesh or Satan himself is there, then the right thing to do if you're not married is to be married. And Paul says it's, it's better to be married than to give in to that sexual temptation or sin. But he says if one is married, and as Paul himself was, and able to exercise self-control and maintain celibacy, that is also a good gift of the Lord to remain in that state, to remain in that unmarried condition as Paul himself was. So it's good for, a mar- for the married to remain committed to their spouse in marriage. It's good for the unmarried, including those who are so by death or uh, of a spouse or by divorce even, to remain single unless the temptations brought about in that condition are too strong, in which case marriage is not only permissible, but it's the right answer. So Paul here, in a very practical and pastoral manner, is not he's not pitting singleness and marriage against each other as a a kind of competing condition where one is morally superior or one is more spiritual than the other, but he's pointing out in a very pragmatic fashion the benefits and the burdens of being married or being single with each as a, being a complementary gift from God. And he goes on to say, as, as we saw last week in what I think is one of the central points of the whole chapter, that whatever the circumstance or condition one finds oneself in, when you become a follower of Christ, whether it's Jew or Gentile, slave or free, black or white, rich or poor, male or female, married or single, 
You don't need to try to undo or change or escape that condition in order to be more acceptable, in order to be more spiritual in the eyes of God. He calls and comes to each of us where we are. And so the cultural and social or, or ethnic or economic or political or educational or, or biological or, or uh, economic status of our lives has no bearing on our our status with God as those who are called and redeemed and bought with the blood of Christ Jesus as his children. But our status with God as called and redeemed children and servants and ambassadors of Jesus Christ has great bearing on how we love and serve God and, how, and one another and how we live God-glorifying lives devoted to Christ in the practical calling of our earthly circumstances and situations. And so Paul, here at the end of this chapter, comes back to the specific issue of marriage and singleness, particularly with regard to those who are, are single and, and considering or even engaged to be married, with wisdom on how those circumstances inform and impact our service and devotion to the Lord. And what we see here is, again, whether single or married, Paul is, is desiring to equip the saints in Corinth and equip us today here in Apex to glorify God in undivided devotion to the Lord in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And so let's read what he says in this last section of this chapter, beginning in verse 25. Let's give attention now to God's word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, 
But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Forever. I remember the struggle I went through in deciding to ask my wife to marry me now over 30 years ago. It wasn't a struggle of whether uh, or not I loved her or if she was the one. I, I, I think those things were all pretty evident. Or even if marriage was a good thing. I knew all those things were true. Rather, it was uh, just a sense of the weightiness of the decision that I was about to, to make and, and, and enter into, the, the situation I was about to enter into, the life-altering impact it would bring that got me wondering, is this the right time? Is this, am I ready? Are we ready for this? And is this really the best step for us to take together? And my consideration at the time had absolutely nothing to do with service or devotion to God. I was a, a fairly young Christian at the time, uh, and, and ministry was not even on my radar at that point in my life. Uh, it was more about the job, the money, the, the impact it was going to have on my freedom and, and her freedom. The, the struggles we might face in our marriage together. All of that stuff was starting to build up and become more of a, a reality as I thought about uh, asking her to marry me. But that's precisely the kind of stuff that Paul says we should take into consideration because those things are real. They are practical Realities They do matter in how we live, not only in union with a, a spouse, but also in relation to the Lord and to others in the world around us. And so Paul turns his attention here to those who are, are unmarried. The, the, the ESV here makes an interpretive translation decision when it, when it says to the betrothed. The Greek word literally means virgins. So Paul is addressing not just those who are what we might call engaged or bound to become married, though later he does use the term uh, in that sense. But he's speaking to all those who have not been or are not yet married. And he says, I don't have a direct command from Jesus on this matter, but I'm going to give you some trustworthy counsel. Again, Paul's emphasis here is Christian freedom, not constraint. Counsel, not commands. But he says it's counsel worth listening to because it comes from one who is entrusted by God's mercy with, with wisdom and even with authority. So what is Paul's counsel? Well, he says in view of the realities of life and the way things are in the world, it's better for those who are married and those who are unmarried to remain as they are. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek to gain one. Same for a woman. But he says if a single man or a woman do get married, that's okay. It's a matter of freedom. It's not a sin. Now Paul's already dropped some of this wisdom back in verses 7 and 8 where he says it's good for those who are single to remain single as he himself was. And he gives several reasons as he comes back to this advice uh, that helps shed some light on both the context he is addressing then and the application for us today. Three reasons that Paul gives here for those who are, are unmarried to remain as they are can be stated like this. The present distress, 
the pressures of marriage and the passing of this world, the passing of time and particularly the passing of this world. He says in verse 26, in view of the present distress or some translations say the impending crisis, it is good for folks to remain as they are. The Greek here denotes some kind of hardship, some kind of impending crisis or constraint that is coming to bear. And we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to here. Some think he is, he is talking eschatologically of the, of the increasing distress that, that will come before the last day and, and Jesus' return to earth. Others see it more likely that Paul's referring to some, some immediate, uh, the immediate climate in which the Corinthians were living, perhaps growing persecution of believers some of which Paul himself had already experienced and which would before long become, become entrenched in, under the emperor Nero. Or perhaps he could be talking more of just some, some general struggles and, and calamities like a, a famine or some other, some other uh, issue that we, people were having to deal with. In, likely, in all likelihood, there's reference to some of all of those in here. Because there was in the early church a sense of the imminence of Christ's return. And Paul referred to this in just a little bit. As well as an understanding from Jesus' teaching himself that, that things were only going to get worse before they get better. That glory would come through suffering. That the kingdom is entered through many tribulations. And so Paul says when you're deciding about getting married, you need to think about the times we live in. Think about the times we live in. There are normal pressures and hardships in life to consider. And there will be increased prejudice and maybe even persecution for those who follow Christ to endure. Those things are, are hard enough if experienced in one's own life. But it's doubly hard when you, when you have to see a spouse or a, a child walk through that as well. If someone insults or attacks me, then, or if affliction or suffering strike in my life, I, I may be able to bear up under that. But when it involves my wife and when it involves my children and, 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 and as that, that impact ha happens there, it's even worse. It's harder to bear. Paul knew from his own experience the cost of discipleship and devotion to the Lord. And he knew there were more tough times ahead. And, and think about it. Imagine how differently... Paul would have had to approach his own ministry if he had had a wife and children. Paul is not denigrating marriage. He's not putting it down, but he is pointing to the fact that, that it is not to be entered into lightly. And in light of turbulent pressure, the turbulent pressures life brings, one should consider the impact such pressures will have on the responsibility that marriage brings and also the responsibilities that marriage brings have on living in light of those things. Now note for those already married, the present distresses of life are not an excuse to try and get out of the marriage. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. God has and will give you grace to endure these distresses together. And Paul says, if you decide to marry, you're free to do so. You're not doing anything wrong. And those of us who are married, we know that it comes with many blessings. But as Paul notes at the end of verse 28, those who marry will not only experience the distresses of this world in, in, in a particular way, but there will also be the pressures just of marriage itself. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, he says. 
Not only are there troubles in the world, but there are those unique pressures that marriage brings to those troubles. By virtue of bringing together two sinful people who are now called to live committed to one another, life just gets harder sometimes. (laughs) And you add children into the mix and it makes a big difference. Think about it. The simple question of what to have for dinner. What should we have for dinner? That's an easy question if you're single, maybe. But bring one more person into that, and all of a sudden you've got other considerations in that. The other person's likes and dislikes. The coordination of timing. The added planning and preparation. Think of the other person's wants or needs. Then you add others like children into the mix, and planning and executing a meal can become actually a major exercise. Now, that may be a silly example, but when Paul speaks of of worldly troubles, he's not necessarily talking about about major problems or even worldly in the sense of sinful matters. It's just the everyday normal realities of life in a fallen world that are multiplied and magnified by the responsibilities that entering into that with others brings. I spoke with a pastor recently who in the, is in the throes of parenting five little ones with a newborn uh, just added to the mix. And I asked him how things were going. And he said, my house is utter chaos. He said, I don't even feel like I can think right now. And it, that's just reality. There wasn't something wrong with that. It wasn't a, necessarily even a bad thing, but it was just the reality of the pressures of life. And then you add to that uh, other trials or struggles or sickness, those things can, can, can be multiplied. Now, I know he loves being married and he loves his kids, but Paul, again, is just pointing out these practical realities. It's a one, marriage is a wonderful blessing, but it brings with it a whole host of issues and problems That if you remain unmarried, doesn't mean you don't have other issues or problems, but these in particular, you are free from. And so he says, when you're considering marriage, you need to count that cost before jumping in. And the third reason Paul gives in the past is the passing of, of time and the passing of this world. In verse 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown short And then down in verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. And here, Paul does have in mind this this sense of the impending return of Jesus in judgment upon the world and the temporal nature of of living in what the the Bible calls these last days, these, these last times. Jesus in Matthew 24 told his followers to, to be alert, to keep watch, to be ready. No one knows the hour or the day when the Son of Man will return. And he says there, he says, it's like the days of Noah when the people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. They were unaware, or maybe not unaware, but just were ignoring the reality of what was coming. They did not heed the warnings. They just laughed at Noah and went on with life. And as a result, were consumed in the judgment of the flood. And so so Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We know his return is imminent, but we don't know when. But life must be lived in light of that reality, and we must be ready. 
And so this world and many of the things we experience in it are temporary in nature. And we need to consider that the things we cherish, including marriage and and close relationships and things of that sort that are, are good things, but they're temporary. They're fleeting in the larger scheme of things. In making decisions, especially important ones like marriage, we need to have an eternal perspective in light of the reality that time is, is short and the forms and the institutions and the structures of this world will one day pass away, give serious consideration to how we want to focus our, our time and our energy and our priorities in this world. And that doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies all over the places we'll see in just a moment. How will you live as a faithful and wise servant and steward of the life and time God has entrusted to you? And Paul says marriage can actually be a distraction from being able to be totally focused and devoted to the things of the Lord. He says there are anxieties, cares, concerns that occupy our lives. And an unmarried person has the freedom, has the availability to to focus and and be able to be concerned and, and, and care for pursuing and pleasing and serving God with the limited time and resources they're given on earth. The married person, he says, has other responsibilities, understandably. Other concerns about pleasing and caring for their spouse. They necessarily have to divide their attention and time in such a way that limits to some degree their ability and their availability to be engaged in undistracted service to the Lord. Now again, those concerns aren't bad. Indeed, their calling is biblical as husbands and wives are to live and be devoted in covenant love to one another. It's a means in a way of devotion and service to the Lord. But also the reality is it often entails being concerned about practical matters that in ways limit our freedom to be fully engaged and focused on the things of the Lord. Now, at the end of the chapter, having given those reasons, Paul applies this advice to those who are already betrothed or engaged to be married those who are, and those who are widowed, saying, as he's already noted before, you're free to be married or to stay unmarried. If you're engaged and your desires are, are so strong, then get married. If your husband dies and and you have opportunity to get remarried, you're free to do so. It's not a moral issue. It's not a matter of is this right or wrong in the eyes of the Lord. You're free to marry or remain single. But again, in Paul's opinion, given the context in in, in his main concern, remaining single is a good thing. Maybe even a better thing in some cases. However, while remaining single or, or married is the question... Paul is addressing it's not the ultimate issue as Paul has said whether you're married or single or widowed there is freedom in Christ Paul's not trying to lay down commands or put undue constraints that create more more anxieties in this life his focus is as he says in verse 35 to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord practically remaining unmarried in many ways, provides greater freedom and focus to do that. But the crux of the matter is, whatever status you choose or in which you find yourself, married or unmarried, devotion to God and to the cause of Christ and living with an eternal perspective in all areas of life is the calling and the cost of discipleship with Jesus. 
And I think that's what Paul is getting at in these somewhat perplexing verses back uh, in 29 to 31. Again, Paul's bracketing these verses with the reality that time is short, that this world is passing away. And we need to hear that and understand that and believe that if what he says in between those, those, uh, that bracket is going to make any sense or difference in our lives. Look at what he says. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as as if they had no dealings with the world. Paul is expanding this, this application here. In other words, the car you drive, the house you live in, the job you have, the vacation you took last year, the retirement you're planning for down the road, the marriage and and family in which you've invested energy and effort in, the grief you experience in losing a loved one, the sorrow or suffering you've endured in solitude or sickness, the joy you experience in a good friendship or seeing a a child born, all of these emotions, all of these experiences and, and things that are real and important and formative and life-changing and can be gifts from God, all of those things are also temporal. They're also fleeting and ultimately will, in their present form, pass away forever. The earthly institution of marriage and the things we cherish and hold dear in this life will ultimately be superseded and overshadowed by the glorious presence and joy and love of God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And thus how we live in these last days, this time that God has given to us in which we, he is present with us in Christ by his Spirit, it's, it's preparatory in a sense. It's, it's preparing for something greater, and it's pe- to be lived with that eternal perspective. Our lives are now rooted, in our, and our hearts and minds are fixed upon the glorious reality and truth of the gospel, that in Christ, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, and married or, or unmarried, You are betrothed. You are united to the one who laid down his life to redeem you for your sin, to call you into into union with himself and is now at work in you and through you and us together as his people to carry out his mission and his ministry to to glorify God and and to bring more people into the kingdom as his ambassadors. Whatever you do, whatever your circumstance, Paul wants us to to remember, do it and live in it with single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying here to be totally devoted to the Lord. Husbands should go home and ignore their wives and sleep in a different room as if they weren't there. Obviously. He's not saying if you're really spiritual when you go to a funeral, you'll just buck up and you won't, you won't cry or weep. Or when you go to a wedding, you just won't dance too much or, or show joy. He's not saying that we don't actually live in those moments. We do. And as believers, husbands and wives should love and cherish one another like no other husbands and wives do. 
As believers, we should weep deepest with those who are hurting. We should celebrate the loudest with those who are joyful. We should enjoy with thanksgiving the provisions and the gifts God gives us in this life. And we should be involved and influential in the world as salt and light in every corner of society. But what Paul is saying is that in light of the fleeting nature of life and the ongoing troubles of this world, none of these things should define who we are. And none of these should divide us from what, uh, what is of preeminent importance, and that is our knowledge and our love and our dependence on and devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul is in some ways echoing the point that Jesus was making in the passage that Annette read for us in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus loved his mother. <laughs> Even caring for her as he was dying on the cross. So he's not saying we shouldn't have deep loving relationships and, and, and with those nearest and dearest to us. We know that. But he is saying that if those relationships take priority over the most important relationship. Following Jesus Christ, then the most important relationship cannot exist. The believer's relationship and devotion to Jesus does take precedence over every other relationship. And therefore, all those other relationships exist for the sake of our relationship with God and devotion to Christ. And when we live in undivided devotion to Christ... It doesn't mean we aren't facing the struggles and the trials and the, and the distractions of this world, but we can enter into those things and those relationships and all the other areas of life in a manner that does indeed glorify God and serves his purposes for us. So what Paul is saying to work backwards through these verses is get involved with the culture and enter into dealings with people and institutions of, of this world but don't become enmeshed and engrossed in those things. Work at your job. Seek to be good at what you do. Use your gifts in ways that benefit others. Buy what you need to buy to take care of your basic needs. Give thanks to God for his provision. But don't accumulate and live for your possessions. Don't store up treasures here. Live as if you own nothing. Because in reality, you do own nothing. It all belongs to the Lord. And it will be gone in a moment's notice. Rather, live for God. Be generous with what you have in helping others. Recognize that you have immeasurable, an immeasurable treasure of grace in Christ. Rejoice at your child or, or a friend's graduation. Pass out cigars when the baby is born. Shout for joy at the beautiful sunset. Cheer at a great athletic play. Relax with a good book. Or a meaningful song. But remember that such joy and happiness last only for a moment. And is nothing compared to the ever-increasing, never-ending joy of entering in and being received into the arms of Jesus Christ. Weep at death. Mourn with others in their suffering and in our own suffering. Be saddened by the effects of sin in this world, 
but not as those without hope. For death has no claim on the believer, and suffering and sin have been defeated in Jesus Christ. And in relation to the overall issue being discussed, if you're married, love your wife or your husband, and by extension, your family, in a way that reflects your love for the Lord and his love for you. Let God love your spouse through you as you sacrifice for, serve, and sanctify one another. And if you're single, you have a special gift from the Lord to devote yourself wholeheartedly to serving and pleasing Him. Married or single, remember your first love and give yourself fully to the one who has sacrificed and served and sanctified you by laying down His life for you. And you know, the beauty of all of this is that the body of Christ, the family of God, we here at Ambassador and and in God's church are made up of those in all kinds of circumstances and situations. We have here in our small household of God's family those who are married, those who are unmarried, those who have been widowed or divorced, those who have jobs and those who are out of work, those who have much to celebrate in life, those who are going through deep struggles, those who are rejoicing, those who are weeping, and we are called to live together in undivided devotion to the Lord, which means we're united to him and to one another for the purpose of worshiping and serving Christ and caring and ministering to one another. And we do that as we face the distresses and pressures of this life together, encouraging and serving one another and reaching out to others with the love and the gospel of Christ. For those who are unmarried, you have great advantages and giftings from God to be able to engage with others and even go out in service to Christ for his kingdom. Don't miss the opportunity God has given you. Young people, think now, how is my life going to serve the Lord? And for those who are married, the obligation to pursue Christ and his kingdom is not removed. And for all of us, we are God's family together. May God give us an eternal perspective and the grace to live single-mindedly for him. Let's pray together. Lord, your calling is a great calling, and it is a hard calling. It is a great calling in that we come and are received and are devoted to the one who knows us and has our greatest good in mind and is working all things for that good in a world that seems at times so against our good. And it is a hard calling because we are called as sinners to continue to grow and engage in a world that is broken and has pressures and problems, and in our own relationships, we experience those. And so, Lord, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in us, in our relationships, married or single. Lord, that you would get our undivided devotion as we live in this life, and as we engage in this, with this world, 
that, Lord, you would be glorified and that we would be encouraged and built up and, and endure until that day when this world passes away and the new heaven and earth comes and all these things, all these distresses and problems and trials will be gone. Thank you that you are present here with us, that you are at work in us. Lord, would you do your work through us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.